Did you know that you can find just about all of our podcast episodes? We've done more than 50 now. On our website, just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like David Grant, Tom Juneau, Catherine Miles, Lane DeGregory, Christopher Gofford, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. On this episode, I replay an interview I did with David Giffels in January of 2015. Giffels is a former reporter and columnist for the Akron Beacon Journal in Ohio, who has gone on to become a creative writing professor in the Northeast Ohio MFA program and the author of three books. When I talked with him, his book of essays, The Hard Way on Purpose, had just been published by Scribner. The book ruminates on Akron and Ohio's Rust Belt, specifically the city's despair and the destruction as the rubber industry moved out. It also embraces Akron's resurgence. In this interview, Giffels talked about writing that book, as well as how being a reporter has made him a better memoir writer. Once you start fact-checking your memory, the first thing is that there's these huge waves of disappointment because the story that you thought was so great and you remembered it so well mm-hmm. falls apart. Um, but then when you start rebuilding it through facts that you've gained from other places, you start to gain this different foundation that gives these layers that your memory is one of and then these other things add to it and they all build toward a meaning that you wouldn't have gotten if you were just relying on your own self. In January of this year, Giffel's third book was published, Furnishing Eternity, A Father, A Son, A Coffin, and A Measure of Life is about Giffel's designing and building his own coffin with his 81-year-old father's help. The New York Times Book Review said Furnishing Eternity was tender, witty, and, like the woodworking it describes, painstakingly and subtly wrought. The book was released on January 2nd. Three days later, Giffel's father died. He wrote about that in an essay that was published on The Atlantic's website on Father's Day. As usual, we've linked to a lot of Giffel's work on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. David, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. Can we start things off with you reading a short section from your book, The Hard Way on Purpose? Sure. This is um, very early in the first chapter of the book. I have spent my whole life watching people leave. This is a defining characteristic of the generation of post-industrial Midwesterners who have stayed in their hometowns. At every stage of opportunity, at every life crossroads, Friends and family members and enemies and old lovers and vaguely familiar barflies depart. Piles of demographic and sociological data chronicle this, the term brain drain serving as a sort of catamaran counterpart to Rust Belt. Akron's population peaked the decade I was born and has dramatically fallen every decade since, from 290,000 in 1960 to 199,000 in 2010. High school graduation, college graduation, career opportunity, layoff, 
coming of age, crisis of confidence, marriage, divorce. The conditioned, perhaps prescribed response is to go somewhere else. They all leave. A conversational quirk exists among natives of this region. Whenever we hear people say they've moved here from somewhere else, we instinctively respond, why? Uh, I love this book. Um, I I think I told you when we first started talking about having you as a guest that I also have pretty much a lifelong, uh, with the exception of about three years, resident of Northeast Ohio. Um, I grew up maybe about 40 minutes away from where you grew up, uh, a little bit south of Akron. Um, and one of the things that I think is so great about this book is you really nail the place uh, of what Akron and what Northeast Ohio is like. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of how you go about doing that in a book? Yeah, well, thanks, first of all. Um, but, I mean, in this case, it wasn't like I set out to understand a place and then write about it. I've lived here, you know, this all this time, and I was a newspaper columnist at the local newspaper for, um, for a number of years. So these are thoughts and ideas and images and philosophies that have been um, kind of generating and moving around in my brain for a long time and this was an opportunity to put all of that into some sort of context. Um, so, um, so it's a little bit different than you know a travel writer for instance who goes somewhere to understand a place and um, this is more like writing about your family in some way that would make sense to somebody who had never met them. Mm -hmm. the, can you talk a little bit about the book and like what readers could expect if they were to pick it up? Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a very specific and in some ways very personal account of growing up as a member of the first generation of the industrial Midwest to only know it as the post-industrial Midwest, to never have known what factories smelled like when they were active factories, but to have been surrounded by abandoned factories and and seen them as abandoned places. Um, and so, while it's specifically about Akron, Ohio, and my life in Akron, Ohio, it's written, I wrote it with a very strong instinct to tr try to project it outward so that it's reflective of the experience of people in other places like this. And in fact, um, I just did an interview with the Buffalo News, which had, it has a monthly book club, and they picked this for their January book club and we had this great conversation the, the reporter and I about like comparing our versions of specific aspects of our life here so like you know like what is Akron's version of the buffalo chicken wing and this understanding that how important it is to have those iconic quirks that people outside of your place can recognize because we feel anonymous when we live in places that have been in some ways forgotten and abandoned and we cling to these touchstones so you know LeBron James is to Akron what the Buffalo Chicken Wing is to, to Buffalo, New York, or something like that. I'm sure he'd love to know that. Right. I was <laughs> going to ask you, um, the book starts with a piece that essentially centers around LeBron uh, James and the decision and everything that happened that kind of right. spun out of that and, and your experience as a reporter encountering him as a high schooler. What, what, why, did, why lead with that piece? Um, in, in part because it's, it's one of the things that does open up the book um, in some ways more universally because, because LeBron James is universal, but he's also has a unique place in Akron. And 
I think there is this con this tension um, in places that have become misunderstood. I mean, Detroit, even you know, for all the universality that Detroit seems to embody, it's really misunderstood right now. And so, you know, there's um, I, I I bring up the the Who's down in Whoville trying to be heard. I think is um, something that a lot of these cities and a lot of these places share. And so to open with the essay about LeBron James and say the world understands LeBron James one way and we understand him a different way um, was what I was trying to do. The The chance happening is that the book came out in March of this year and LeBron announced in July that he was coming back home. And so that whole theme kind of took on you know, kind of its its next level of meaning at the same time as the book was still kind of in play. And you were able to incorporate that, right? That that he was coming back, as I recall, or no? No, actually, so he he left in 2010. I wrote that essay in 2012. Um, you know, and and really like the heart of that essay is the fact that no, I don't think any American athlete has been so tied to the narrative of his or her hometown as LeBron James. Um, and the book came out in March at a time when his free agency was very much in question what would happen. Um, and so I didn't know. You know. I thought either I will look like a prophet or a complete fool. Mm -hmm. So I don't think I came out as either somewhere in the middle. <laughs> right. Were you surprised? I mean, this is kind of not about the book, but were you you weren't surprised that he came back, well, right? Well, it kind of is about the book because what what I was surprised by was that he didn't just come back. He wrote his own personal essay about what home means to him. He didn't say I'm making a decision, you know, athletes always say I'm making the best decision for my family or what what's best for my career. He said I'm doing this for you, my hometown in a lot of ways to me. Um, he added to the narrative, um, and you know, in literally and figuratively, in a way that made it really interesting to me. Did you? Did you? When you read his piece that Sports Illustrated um, put online, when his his decision 2.0 or whatever, did you? Did you? Do you feel like you were able to get that in a way that maybe other people, or maybe, I mean, people that aren't from Akron. Did you get it, and do you feel like you were able to understand that in a way that other people wouldn't be able to? Well, first of all, you know, I mean, he he wrote it with Lee Jenkins from Sports Illustrated, who's a very good writer. But it's clear to me that this this is his words. Somebody helped him craft it, maybe. But um, it's a very sincere, direct message. And so my, you know, I got goosebumps and choked up when I when I very first read it. And a lot of people around the country said the same thing that they felt like a real sincerity. In that, so I think people got it in a way that they were that that's this was a new thing for an athlete to be saying or something different than the usual message. So, I, but I do think that people in Akron, Ohio, and Cleveland, Ohio, specifically, hear a resonance in those words that's that only we can understand because we come from a certain kind of hard times that LeBron James comes from, and when he says, "I know what your hard times feel like." It's not lip service. We know that that's true, and we know that at some point, only those who've lived through those specific hard times can really know what it means. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a little bit ago that you just uh, did an interview uh, with the Buffalo uh, newspaper. 
mm-hmm. um, because they're they're u- using your book as uh, as as a book club. Can you talk about how the the book resonates with like other cities and you know across the country? Because I know you know it's a book about Akron, but how you know why do people? Why would anybody else outside of Akron care about Akron? Yeah, I mean that that was always my. Um concern and tension in writing and, and in preparing for the release of the book was that I didn't want this to seem like it was an enclosed um, piece of writing, but that it was like the, the beginning point of certain kinds of things. And I did a ton of touring and a ton of interviewing on the book. I mean, basically the whole spring and summer was spent talking to people in other places. And for the most part, there was a combination of an understanding, especially in the Midwest and, and in industrial places, a, a recognition that this is a, these are themes that play in other places. And also like a sincere curiosity, like, you know, like one of the very first pieces was with, with NPR. So it was a conversation for a national audience, um, and, but, but there seemed to be a sincere interest in understanding a place that I think NPR understands is often, you know, sort of stereotyped or or easily maligned. You know, NPR, I think, sees Ohio as a really good place to go every four years when Ohio is going to decide who gets to be president. And so, you know, to have a conversation that was much more nuanced Mm -hmm. was interesting to me. Right. And you have um, you have some pieces in there regarding elections in Ohio and how kind of Ohio is, you know, every four years we get we get paid attention to. Um, was that important for you to include that kind of that kind of narrative within the story? Oh yeah, because I think there's like a, a like I think you know in some ways Ohio is is shorthand for the most quintessentially American kind of place. You know, it's in the middle of the country, but people on the coast don't know exactly where in the middle it is. It's just sort of in that middle, and um, and it's and it's you know the reason in some ways that Ohio is a bellwether or a swing state is because it does, there are a lot of intersections of like middle class life here that are representational of what the national picture is. In the 90s, the New York Times sent a writer named Michael Weinrip. Um, They they did all this number crunching and, and matrices and all this to try to figure out the most American place in America, and they just they decided on Canton, Ohio, which is 30 minutes south of Akron, um, and they sent Michael Weinrep and his family to live there for a year as Cantonites and Cantonians. I don't even, <laughs> right. um, but this idea that Ohio somehow embodies uh, a, a quintessential Americanness, I think. I find it interesting, and I also, you know, bristle against it because it's then it becomes we sort of become this like sort of you know the Simpsons live in this place called Springfield that seems like every place but is really no place, you know, and you don't want to be that you want to be unique and you want to be the way you understand yourself to be, which is with all your quirks and specificities and not some sort of bland representation, you know, of something that's not real. Right. Right. Um- can you talk about the writing process for these pieces? Like, had these pieces all been kind of percolating over the years, or um, were they pieces that you had published before and culminated into, you know, you pulled into a book? Can you talk about that process? Sure, yeah. I mean, a lot of books of essays are, are compilations of, you know, the work that's been done over the past 
certain number of years. But in this case, except for a couple of specific cases, everything was written for this project. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, the book went through some like seriously different drafts and permutations. At one point, it was uh, working as a narrative memoir, um, and some aspects of that still stay still are here in this version of the book. But ultimately, um, my editor and I decided we wanted it as a book of essays, and so so it was all written for this project, um, except for a couple of pieces previously published pieces, mm -hmm. just two. Um, that I pulled in because they fit directly into it, and then those were substantially rewritten. Um, but it was, yeah, it's meant to be a, of a single piece and of a single time mm -hmm. as well. But what what was that like to, I know you said it started out as possibly a narrative memoir, but then it kind of moved, like in terms of, there's a lot of stuff covered and all mm -hmm. in the essay form. And in the essay form, you kind of have these, um, the structure you kind of got to follow through um, was that was that hard for you to do or no or being no because what was happening when I was trying to write it as a narrative was that I was finding that that the the one main weakness is that my the through line of my life is not very interesting, um, but all the little landmarks along the way were very interesting. I'm like, well, what if we just take out the through line of my boring life, and so and so a lot of those pieces had been written more like as scenes or you know. And things like, for instance, there's a, a chapter in there that's about um, thrift store culture. Originally, that was a scene. It was like a, a stepping stone uh, along the way of a of a storyline that was playing out that didn't that didn't play out. But I had this stuff from this trip to a thrift store that opened up this whole theme of what thrift store culture means in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the pieces in here went from being more like um, anecdotal or, or sort of plot-driven um, episodes that then sort of served as the shell for th themes, for thematic stuff. So a lot of the book is, a lot of the is, essays are thematic, but they have kind of like s sort of some of the shell of that narrative that was originally part of the process. Mm -hmm. And and you've got the book broken up into four parts. Um, can you talk about those four parts and why those four parts? Yeah, I'm going to have to open up the table of contents to even remember exactly what they're. The first the first is um, you know the first part is called the heart of the heart of it all, and the idea was I wanted to really establish place and what this place feels like and means. So and and the specific tenets of place that I thought represented, you know, helped form that. So there's sports, which are very central to life in Northeast Ohio. Weather, which, you know, is a specific um, part of living near the shore of Lake Erie in, in the snow belt. Um, and, you know, and, and just the sense of what life in a post-industrial city looks and feels like. Um, and then the second part is more like, um, I guess, sort of the early coming of age, mm -hmm. kind of coming to an understanding of a place as a young person when that place is in a state of sudden, dramatic, and sometimes traumatic change. Um, and then the third section, which is called Local Men, is actually, in my mind, works almost like a, a four-chapter novella mm -hmm. about my friend John and I, um, really like coming to like as young people 
um, an ownership of the place that nobody really wanted. Um, so we both went to college at the University of Akron together um, and started to discover the city together just as it was being, the, the central city was being abandoned by, you know, what had been the prevailing culture, the banks and the um, big department stores and the institutions of downtown were really just, you know, like had been suburbanized. And so this rediscovery of a place at its moment of transition and then the fourth part of the book is kind of bringing it up to the present. Where are we now? What's what's it all mean now? And, and I think a little bit about where it's headed. Do you have a favorite piece in the book? Um, not. I wouldn't say I do. It's funny, you know, like when you write a book or when I write a book, I don't read it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I like I haven't read this book since... <laughs> since it was accepted by a publisher but but you do readings so mm -hmm. you pick out pieces that you know that you like to do why so i like there are pieces that i really like to lead, to to read because I, I think they work well in that context but then you know like i i still i mean i guess if i was going to say my favorite might be that first chapter about lebron james just because it changed like it i wrote it like i said right in the middle of its own narrative after he had left while he was gone just as he was winning his first championship in miami and then he changed the narrative because after the book came out so i just like it in that way because it makes i like the idea of stories not being static and once they go into a book but actually continuing to have some kind of life um and so that one definitely did right uh, is there a piece that you've noticed that people, um, when you go to on readings and that uh, you do readings, um, is there a piece that people kind of um, uh, like really connect with uh, and talk about? You know, I really like this piece. Yeah, not really that they really like it, but there's one that keeps coming up, and it's weird because it probably is my least favorite piece in the book. <laughs> like, there's a chapter that I wrote. It's the last chapter I wrote, I think. Um, near the end that needed to kind of take care of some loose ends or, or pick up. And to me, it seems almost like a little bit pedantic or pedestrian. Like I just needed to say some things about how um, this part of the country is perceived. Mm -hmm. And yet that's the one um, that has come up the most often in interviews and in conversations at readings and so forth. Um, and specifically a passage in there where I say something to the effect of that I sometimes resent people who leave and come back because they, they, they will sometimes come back and say, you know, like take ownership of your pain. And, you know, for someone who's stuck it out here for my whole life, it's like, wait a minute, if I don't get to own that pain exclusively, then I've got nothing. <laughs> and so I think some people who have moved and come back have bristled at that or people who've moved away suggested that or, or have felt like I was maybe looking down on them, which maybe I was, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, that one's been kind of interesting because I didn't expect it to be, you know, to take on a life of its own that way, but it definitely has. Right. That's funny because I, I moved away from Northeast Ohio and then I came back, but I kind of, I think I got what you were saying. Like, I feel like you do have more ownership of it. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite interviews I did was, it was with an NPR show um, but the host was, so it was a national NPR show, but the host happened to be from Warren, Ohio. 
And we kind of got into it, like in a really fun, but also kind of like charged way, because Mm -hmm. he's like, man, I go back if I have to for a funeral or a wedding, but I feel like I have to like go through, you know, like be repatriated to where I live now, just, you know, take a shower basically after he comes, but he hates it here. And so we had a really fun exchange, but but that was also had some teeth because mm-hmm. you know I was fighting the good fight for right. my people, and he was fighting the bad fight <laughs> against us. What's been the feedback, especially in Akron? Um, well, in Akron, um, you know, I, the, the, it's really like it, it's been it had a really strong mm-hmm. positive response because it's places that people recognize you know like when I worked for newspaper and I know you've worked for newspapers there's this um, mantra people want to read about people like who are like them mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that we are we find warming about the local newspaper is that we understand each other and so you know so when there's a book that people recognize themselves in I think they um, they respond strongly to it mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and but also you know weirdly three books this year came out um, by Akron writers that that were about Akron all very different from one another. So um, so it just feels like there's this little moment of I don't know what it means, but it was kind of fun to kind of talk to the other writers about what it's like to write about this place. Right, right. What were those? What were those books? Um, the other one is it's kind of a picture book, kind of collage kind of book called, um, I think it's Akron A to Z. And it actually goes through the letters of alphabet. A, a is for the Akron Art Museum. B. So it's, it's kind of a just sort of a um, snapshot kind of, but really, you know, visual book. And then the other one, which I can't think of the title of, but it was um, uh, written by a former deputy mayor. And it's kind of about um, Akron's um, industries and business. It's it's kind of a Chamber of Commerce piece. I mean, in fact, it was it was commissioned by the Chamber of Commerce. But it's um, solidly written and and a good piece of um, kind of where we are, kind of writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we're going to take a short break. Uh, we'll be back uh, in just a minute with more from David Giffels, uh, our author of The Hard Way on Purpose. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University, which grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection, while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. And by the Department of English at Fairfield University, which is home to the digital journalism major, as well as an English major with concentrations in literature, creative writing, English studies, professional writing, and teacher education. For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu. This is Matt Tullis, and we're back on Gangry the Podcast with David Giffels. Giffels wrote the book The Hard Way on Purpose, which is a collection of essays that examine the wreckage and resurgence of the Rust Belt, primarily through the lens of Akron. 
David, you started out as a reporter uh, at the Beacon Journal, which is in Akron. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and kind of what it was like to be a reporter in your hometown newspaper? Yeah, um, it was great. I mean, I, um, I, I never intended to have a journalism career, and it really happened more or less by accident. Um, but once I started, I started out by writing for a small-town newspaper, the Medina County Gazette, um, not far from Akron, about 40 minutes away. And once I, was, once I decided I, I liked journalism, my only goal at that point was to write for my hometown newspaper. Because I think there's something um, a really rewarding and um, enlightening about writing about the place that you associate very strongly with as your home. Um, and so when I got to do that, it was really great to be able to learn so much more about its past and its its cultural past, its historical past, its economic past. And um, because when you understand your place, you understand yourself. And so you know it was a lot of fun. And then it's you know like it's just kind of fun to be writing for the paper that you grew up learning. I learned how to read by reading the Akramika Journal, and then to know that I'm writing for it was really neat for me. I loved it. Did you, um, you said you didn't intend, you went to the University of Akron. Did you ever uh, in, think about going elsewhere or was it University of Akron all the way? And then once you were there, what were you kind of studying? That type of. Well, you, you implied that I thought. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, I wasn't real, like I didn't really have a plan. You know, like, like my, you know, my daughter right now is in high school and she's, you know, she's looking at colleges and she knows what she wants to do. And, I, uh, it, from the time I learned how to read, I always said I wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And so when I was a little kid, like I was always very, very sure that's what I wanted to do. And the farther I got along in college, the more I was certain I wanted to be a writer, but the less I understood what that meant. Because it starts, especially when you're, you know, in a career oriented environment like a college, um, you know, it, that's like saying I will learn how to become invisible. You know, when somebody else is going to be an accountant and someone's going to be a nurse, and um, and so by the time I got to the end of my undergraduate work, the only goal, the only career goal I had was not to write for a newspaper. I knew I wanted to be a writer, and I knew I didn't want to write for a newspaper. So I did the next logical thing: is went to graduate school and studied creative writing, and I got to the end. And still had just one career goal, which is not to write for a newspaper. And then a week later, I started writing for a newspaper. And then I did that for 18 years. So, like, yeah, so um, so I didn't really, like, sort of consciously set out to chart my course. Um, but I was ambitious. I mean, I wanted to do a lot of, there was a lot of things I wanted to do as a writer that, as much as I loved journalism, I, I wasn't fulfilled by. So I was doing a lot of, you know, my, I mean, the books... So the books I wrote up before this book were all done in addition to my other work and so, and other kinds of writing that I did for other contexts. So um, my ambition kind of eventually found its way, but it wasn't there at the beginning. Right. Uh, when uh, what type of uh, what type of stuff did you uh, you do uh, when you first started at the Beacon Journal? <laughs> my my first job at the Akron Beacon Journal, I got hired away from, you know, a full-time, more than full-time job at the Medina paper, I was hired part-time as the society writer. Um, so, <laughs> it, because that was the job that was open. Um, and so, yeah, so I kind of like, 
um, and they wanted to hire me, so it was just kind of a way to get me in. And then, um, and then I started, you know, like quickly became a feature writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did mostly features, um, and then I started doing longer form features for the Sunday Magazine and some other big projects. And so I was doing stuff that really, you know, was great to be able to sink your teeth into big long term, long form journalism projects, mm-hmm. which I did a lot of. Um, and then I became a columnist, um, a metro columnist, which I did for about close to the last ten years that I was there. Mm-hmm. Did and did um, did have having that graduate uh, study in creative writing? How did that help you, or did it hurt oh, you? It helped a lot. I mean, once I started, you know, I was kind of secretly writing a novel while I was in college, writing short stories primarily for my coursework, but. Um, after I finished, I continued working on my own on this novel, which I rewrote three times, and w- we'll never see the light of day. And I, you know, but um, you know, the one thing I learned that I understand now is the way you learn how to write is by writing. And so, to write, to understand, to to write a failed novel is to learn a lot. And so, I learned a lot about how to how to write narrative and how to write scenes and how to write how to develop characters and things that I used in journalism. You know all the time and you know so I learned from my teachers and I learned from reading but I also learned from just from writing mm-hmm. and then f- kind of flipping that um, in terms of writing essays and memoir and the type of stuff you do now um, how how like what types of things do you fall back on as you're you know as, as having many years as a journalist you know, what what type of stuff that helps you in this new uh, writing that you do Right, yeah, because what I'm doing now primarily is memoir type, type writing. The last two books in the book, the next book I'm going to be writing is, or that I'm working on is the same thing. And so, uh, the, I mean, the first thing that I've learned and that I've known for a long time is to always be reading well, especially while you're writing, um, but to be avoiding the things that are going to overtake you. Like, there are certain writers I can't read while I'm actively writing because I know I'll fall into you know, I, I'll just want to imitate them. Like, I love David Foster Wallace, and I've learned so much from him, but if I'm reading him, I'm, I, I'll tend to be writing in an imitation of him. You'll be um, putting footnotes everywhere? and No footnotes, but definitely, <laughs> like, sort of, over, I'm already hyper self-conscious, and if I read him, he just encourages it. So right. I have to, to pick something else. But, so that, and, but, you know, the other thing is, you know, I think some memoirists will tend to, you know, take the root word of memoir, which is memory, and think that that's their main tool. And one thing that journalism taught me is that that's that's your most fallible tool. Mm-hmm. And so I do, I do tons of research, um, and you know, I do, um, you know, the kind of research that I learned how to do, doing journalism. And once you start fact checking your memory, the first thing is that there's these huge waves of disappointment. Because the story that you thought was so great and you remembered it so well mm-hmm. falls apart, um, but then when you start rebuilding it through facts that you've gained from other places, you start to gain this different foundation that gives these layers that your memory is one of, and then these other things add to it, and they all build toward a meaning that you wouldn't have gotten if you were just relying on your own self. Right, right. Yeah, that happened. Um, I have an MFA uh, also, um, and that happened to me when I was doing my thesis because I was writing a memoir 
um, about when I had leukemia. And I had this certain, this memory of exactly how everything happened in the hospital. And then I went and got my medical records and nothing happened in the order that it had, it was in my mind. And yeah. it really, it changed everything. So, um, like I, I tell my students all the time that, um, writers, they, they reach, um, stages of maturity and one of the key stages and it happens in different ways and through different forms but one of the key stages is when the writer reaches his or her stage of humility mm -hmm. and sometimes that means having been humbled by something or finding something that, that something is bigger than you um, that all of this talent that you have isn't really worth it isn't really what it's about or whatever um, and I think one of my experiences of that was learning um, that my storytelling self is is um, a, not a real self. You know, um, you know. There's there are times when a personal essay can't be researched. That there isn't there, that there isn't a way to to get other accounts of the same event. It's something that happened privately, and there isn't there, there's no way to augment it. And I know I've written those essays, and those sometimes are my favorite pieces of writing but I know they're probably not really true mm -hmm. like I'm aware of their of of their weaknesses but they're pure because they're not hindered by somebody else saying wait a minute <laughs> you know it, it didn't happen that way right right if it, it married people know this like you you'll be at a cocktail party and you'll start telling a story and your spouse will go that that didn't happen that way. It wasn't my birthday or whatever. And you realize that she's right, and then vice versa. Like, um, you know, that that's it's one of my favorite parts of being human. <laughs> right, right. I have a tendency to exaggerate numbers when I tell stories. Yeah. Not in my writing, but when I'm telling a story, you know, twelve becomes twenty-five. <laughs> or, oh yeah. You know, right. Because I, mean, I love the book Angela's Ashes, and one of the things I love about it is this Irish storytelling thing where you kind of know when Frank McCourt is doing is putting on the storyteller mm -hmm. you know, and letting that go um, but you still trust him because I guess because you, you, there's sort of a transparency of that voice mm -hmm. were there any um, writers that um, I, maybe you can list off the top of your head who you really you read a lot and maybe kind of helped shape you into who um, kind of the writer you, you are becoming or evolving into? Um, yeah, I mean, I can't really say, like, there are... It just evolves, mm -hmm. and, and and very often, like, the kind of writing I'm doing um, is the kind of reading I'm doing, and so I'm... So, you know, like, so like when I was writing this book, um, the book Pulphead by John Jeremiah Sullivan came out, um, which I loved, and I just it resonated with me in a whole lot of ways, and I learned a lot from it, and was influenced by it. Um, and in terms of essays, I mean, Joan Didion mm -hmm. is somebody who I adore and go back to, and David Foster Wallace is someone I'm, um, you know, again that like really resonates for me and that I admire. Um, and you know, but then when I was writing my previous book, All the Way Home, I was reading a lot of narrative memoir and so certain people and certain like Bill Bryson was somebody that I was reading a lot of then and um trying to think of who else. Well definitely Dave Eggers. Mm -hmm. Um so it just it just is always changing and it's fun to be it's fun to be teaching now because I teach in an MFA program and I teach um specialized classes. So 
I will often pick, like when I was working on this book, I taught a class on the essay collection, and we had, and so I got to be reading and writing and talking about and interacting with people um, who were dealing with those kinds of books. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it just it just changes and evolves. Mm -hmm. When you when you were at the Beacon Journal, Chuck Klosterman was there too, right? Yeah. Did you? Um, he also kind of was doing a lot of writing on the site as well. Right. Did you two ever talk about writing? And oh God, <laughs> that's all we did. <laughs> I mean, there, there, he's in a chapter of this book. We used to have he and I and another writer named Michael Weinreb. Mm -hmm. um, we were like um, really close drinking buddies, and we would go out. And uh, this was before any of us had had our first books published. Mm -hmm. And we would just be, we would just like talk about you know the, what we our ambitions, and you know like sort of challenge each other in certain ways and yeah and it was a really good and foundational friendship for me um, because it was you know you it, it, writers need communities and they need you know to feel like there are other people who have the same ambitions with them and then you go oh you know if he does it first then I need to catch up or you know things like that that healthy kind of competition so and we're still good friends and we have the same agent now and I mean we have um, continue to be kind of writer friends in that way. Right. Knowing that all this was happening about 30 miles northeast of where I was working as a newspaper reporter makes me think I really should have tried to get into the Beacon Journal at that oh, point. Oh, yeah. You know, what would happen, this is part of that chapter in the book, is so Chuck and Michael and I were this three-headed uh, like drinking team. And when Michael went off to graduate school, then we, we actually um, had auditions for who would be the third member of the, the drinking slash writer team. And so um, so the next person passed the audition, and then he moved on to another right. job. And so so you could have been, yeah, you could have auditioned. I could have auditioned. I was yeah, for a the, short drive away. I would have driven out every night. Yeah. So Yeah, it was a good thing. Well, anyways, David, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with, uh, talk with me here on the podcast. It was fun. Thanks for having me. That was an interview I did with David Giffels in January of 2015 after his book, The Hard Way on Purpose, was published. In January of this year, his book Furnishing Eternity was published by Scribner. As usual, we've linked to a lot of Giffels' work on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.